My name is Mike, and this is The Goods. You're listening to episode nine, part three. In this series, we go behind the scenes of the Spartan Games and learn how Herman Demick prepared in just 72 hours. We're picking up the story at the start of the competition on day one. So the athletes have started to arrive and day one of the Spartan Games is about to begin. Can you take us inside the athlete briefing and how the events were announced? So we all arrived. It was somewhere between two and probably four o'clock in the afternoon. And what's funny is some of the people actually got held up because we're not allowed onto the farm until we get our COVID test getting off of the airplane. So as we get our COVID test, we show that we're kind of within our own bubble. So everybody has to wear masks and everybody's meeting each other mid-afternoon and they don't even start releasing any workouts until the athlete briefing that we have after dinner that night. So it's four o'clock. We ended up eating dinner sometimes 6.30, 7 o'clock. And then that's when Mike Morris starts to brief what's going to happen for the next day and here comes Joe DeSena. He just walks in, says, all right, everybody stop. Before we release anything, you guys are going to carry rocks to the top of my mountain for me. So for two hours, we just start walking up the mountain, both males and females. And we had to start laying stones for some of the stairs that he needed around a little cabin that's up on the mountain. Uh, And it's probably a good mile, two miles. You're like, ah, no big deal. But when you're carrying 30, 40, 50 pound rocks, one in each hand, I mean, it's a long walk. And I think it was kind of twofold. Like number one, Joe immediately wanted to put everyone out of their element and get out of Mm. their comfort zone and be like, oh, cool. You guys are here to compete. Great. And I'm going to basically smack you across the face with something you weren't ready for and see how people would react to something out of the ordinary. And then number two, it was free labor for him. So he didn't have to pay somebody else to do it, or he didn't have to do it himself and put it in a cart and four-wheel it all the way up there. They didn't officially tell us these workouts until we got back at like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And then we're still trying to prepare for three events on that first day. And it wasn't that it was fatiguing on anybody. I think it probably just annoyed some people. Yeah. Okay. So getting them out of that comfort zone and then announcing the events the next day might've just set the tone of what to expect. Like expect the unexpected is what I'm taking from what you're saying. Yeah. Was there anything like unique about how the events were announced? Did they keep anything in secret at the start or was it all pretty much day by day released? Everything was pretty much day by day released just because they had to tell us what gear to bring. We were aware that there was going to be a swim. We didn't know how long, how short, uh, was it part of something else? We just knew that there was going to be a swim because Xterra wetsuits provided the wetsuits. So we ended up having to go in and put all of our information in so that they could size you and have it brought in. They told us that there was going to be some sort of mountain bike related event because everybody had to either bring or rent their mountain bike. And you mentioned there were three events on day one and event mm-hmm. one kicked off with the Spartan Cross, which was a five kilometer race on a course with 54 obstacles. How many mm-hmm. Spartan races had you actually done before this event? Zero. I've never in my entire life done any obstacle course racing. 
So it didn't matter what you were going to throw at me in that obstacle course. It's a combination of things that I've never attempted in my life, but it's a Spartan hosted event. It seems pretty logical. They're going to host it with the flagship event of what Spartan is all about. And that's going to be some sort of obstacle course race and try and put people out of their element. And for those who haven't ever done an obstacle course race or heard of them, what were some of the obstacles that were included in that 54 list? To start, uh, you have to you know, run and climb over a nine foot wall. You basically just have to jump up, grab the top of the wall and try and pull yourself over the wall. What was unique and led into a little bit of drama was only on this first lap of this entire course. After you jump over the wall, you have to climb underneath some barbed wire. You got to army crawl or roll underneath it. And then there's uh, a 300 meter extra portion of lap one where you have to pick up a 70 pound five gallon jug that had been filled with sand. And you had to pick that up, hold that however you want to and run 300 meters. That's only part of lap one. And on that first lap, the better obstacle course racers who are leading, they're kind of messing around with each other. And it looks like Hunter brushed by Aaron Newell and tried to like smack him in the stomach. And I don't know if he actually hit him in the stomach or hit him a little bit below the waist or whatever happened. So Aaron gets mad and throws his bucket at his back in the middle of the race. So there's already this craziness and we're not even 90 seconds into the first event of the Spartan games. And I'm so locked into what I'm doing. Like it didn't even dawn on me what was actually happening at the time. So you get finished with that 300 meter and then everything else becomes the same. And you've got to do some monkey bars, which are different than what you think of because the handles are so big. It's like a backwards angled monkey bar set where you've got to actually climb over a wall. I don't even know what they call it, but you just got to basically be able to use your upper body strength to get yourself to the top of the wall and flip over. There's a rope climb in there. There's also, they call it the twister. So it's, it tests your grip strength, but every time you grab a handle, there's a tube that twists. As soon as you grab one handle, when you're reaching for the other one, it's that handles not in an ideal location. So it's almost like monkey bars, but constantly twisting and moving on you. And you have to move across this, this piece of 25, 30 feet long, pop off of that one, run a little bit more. And uh, then there's one other, it's like a net wall. So you have to climb up this tall net, I'm going to say probably 20 feet in the air, flip over this net wall, run and grab a sled that's weighted on the ground. And you have to drag that entire sled to you and then pull that entire sled back to where it started. And that's basically every one of the main obstacles before you then go run 800 meters through the woods. Uh, and then you come back and you have one final obstacle called the Hercules hoist. For the men, I think it's like an 80 to 100 pound bag. And you have to pull this entire bag up like 25, 30 feet in the air and then make sure that you control it all the way back down to the ground. So once it gets to the top, you can't let go. So the hard part is once you get it there, you have to hold on. And then they've used all their strength to get it up and they can't lower it back down under control. So the rope just slips and then just rips all the skin off their hands. Like people are just coming away with gross, bloody hands to start oh, no. the week. This is the very first thing. And now 
people are having to put on like neosporin and band-aids and eight layers of tape just to use a normal doorknob just to go to bed at night. They're already ruined for the week. Given that you'd not done an obstacle course race, what was your strategy going into this? If you watch the Spartan games, they let us do a a short kind of walkthrough. And you'll hear me, the camera kind of zoomed in on my face. And I'm like, I'm taking notes on all the people that are good at this stuff. And, and that was what was really fun about these games is we all came from different disciplines and we all had strengths and weaknesses that would either put us in a comfort zone or completely put us out of. So my thought was I can rely on being pretty strong and I'm generally a pretty good runner. So this should play pretty good into my hands. I'm just not efficient or aware at how the obstacle should be done. So my job, what I really wanted to do is take some notes from the people that had some tricks up their sleeve and sit back early and not do things without seeing somebody else do it. And then just try and let some of my speed, maybe not so much just the pure endurance, but let some of the speed take over when I needed it. And there were a lot of people that have done these before and they don't tell you this, or maybe they tell you this if you watch the games, but you got penalized if you could not complete certain obstacles. So even if somebody technically finished in front of you on their time, they would be penalized if they couldn't do certain obstacles. So my thought on this one was go as fast as I can possibly go, but don't miss an obstacle. Just don't get penalized on anything. So coming out of the first event on something I've never done. I think I finished like fifth on the first event. And there were a lot of people paid to be obstacle course racers. So really my thought there was don't make mistakes and use my total body strength to get through the obstacles as best I could. You mentioned that you were taking notes from some of the athletes. Is there a particular note or is this something that you found to be super useful in the event that you only learned at the start? Well, so I did find that some of the athletes that wanted to be able to conserve their energy under the barbed wire, as long as you can control like getting dizzy, don't try and necessarily crawl like an army person because it's really slow. If you roll, if you like barrel roll underneath it, you can move pretty quickly. So that was something I picked up pretty quick. The other thing I picked up pretty quick was when you're doing the the Hercules hoist, which is the one where you basically grab the sandbag and you've got to pull the sandbag way tall that every chance you get, just like climbing a rope, it's more technique than it is upper body strength. So you can use your feet. So every time you lay back and use your body weight, step on the rope with your feet and then let your arms take a break and anchor it down. Just like you would do if you're climbing a rope and you J-hook the rope and you pinch the rope with your feet, now technically doing an actual rope climb becomes more of a push yourself up the rope with your legs than it is an actual pull. So those are some things that you quickly see out of the corner of your eye and take some notes and then try and adjust as quickly as you can. Those are probably two of the things in particular that I I remember. Yeah. And if anyone's done a lot of rope climbs before, if you've not got an efficient technique and if you're just over relying on your upper body strength, like you burn out very quickly. And if you know, that's only event one and you've got what sounds like the open water swim for event two coming up, you're going to want to have some of that shoulder strength and that endurance left. 100%. You did finish. You're right. You finished in fifth with a time of 38 minutes and 29 seconds. How confident then were you going into the swim? In the next event, I swam for 12 years growing up. And 
even though I'm a baseball guy, I'm a strength guy, like I do have quite a bit of a swimming background. So I actually went into that event trying to not say anything. Like I'm the new guy, but at the same time, like all of a sudden somebody was like, oh, cool. That guy got fifth. Okay. Like he's never done this. So that's okay. Now going into the swim, I was like, huh. All right. Keep my mouth shut. Don't say a word that I've swam before and just get in the water and see what happens. And, and really my whole thing on that one was 45 minutes is a long swim. If you don't have a wall, because usually when you grow up swimming, you're either in a you know 25 yard or a 50 meter pool. So you've got flip turns or you've got walls no more than 50 meters from you at any given point. This one's open water. And I think the thing that made it so hard that people don't really see is each lap was 200 meters. So it's a very mm. short lap. If anybody's you know ever done any triathlons or any open water swims, usually about the shortest each lap will ever be is going to be about 500 meters. But I do understand that from a liability perspective on this, because not a lot of these people are you know, professional swimmers, they wanted to keep people as close to the shore as possible. And at the same time, the water is 54 degrees. So you don't want them too far from land or too far from mm -hmm. safety. I mean, they did have other people in the water. They had every safety precaution they could, but you just still don't know what's going to happen. So anyways, kept my mouth shut. And I think some people started to raise their eyebrow when they saw me put on my goggles because I didn't look like a newbie. I know that sounds weird, but I actually wear a pair of Swedish goggles, so they don't have padding. It's just plastic. And everybody mm. else is wearing the goggles that were given to them. They're like, why does this guy have his own stuff? And and people just, they didn't say anything. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, the guy that wins that event is in the 2008 Olympics as a triathlete. So like- Incredible he's, swimmer. He's an incredible swimmer. He's on the cover of a Wheaties box. Like he's like, this guy is on the cover of a Wheaties box because of how good of a triathlete he is. And I think his job is, was being like a, a lifeguard too. So mm. surprise, surprise. I didn't expect to come away necessarily with a win in that, knowing that he was in that, but I knew I could place pretty well. Yeah. And you mentioned the water temperature was about 54 degrees, which mm -hmm. sorry, 50, is that 54 degrees Fahrenheit? 54 degrees Fahrenheit. So I think that puts it at what's that? Seven Celsius, seven degrees Celsius, maybe, maybe thereabouts. I'm sure people could do that kind of research themselves, but it sounds yeah, really Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. Curious about the water visibility then as well, because in the open water that I imagine that's a bit of a factor, you know, if you can't see where you are, like a, a normal pool that you say has uh, a 50 meter length, then it's pretty clear, but open water is very different. Did you have any like idea of your placement and where you sat in the field once you're in the, the water? So I knew once we got out, my goal on that one especially with the kind of goggles that I wear. I didn't want to be stuck behind people because the kind of goggles I wear, because there's no padding, if I get kicked in the eye, it'll break skin. I could be you know, bleeding. It, it could cause some damage. So I got out and into the water very quickly and just tried to beat everyone I could to the very first buoy. Mm. And it ended up being, uh, I think it was, me, Jared Shoemaker, which by the way, he won, and Josiah, who's a 14-time world champ in Xterra outdoor triathlons. So like I'm I'm putting myself I'm putting myself in these categories with the world's best. And I get out, and those are the only two guys that were at the first buoy with me. 
And then from that point on, I knew all I had to do was just, I figured after the first probably six or 800 meters, when it was just us three, I knew there weren't anybody else that was going to basically catch up at that point. So the hard part was then because you couldn't see, like you were saying, it's a very dark, murky water. The closest, sometimes you'll, you'd randomly see some bubbles coming from somebody's feet. You'd start to get hazy in front of you. Or if you started not seaweed, but shrubs or something that was under the water, you start getting yourself caught in bushes or something under the water. Because we were relatively close to shore. We were no more than, I don't know, 50 yards offshore. It wasn't that we were very far. So still, the water was shallow enough that you could catch some of these leaves and debris. But Mm. But as you start catching people, and then you start passing people, you don't know if those are necessarily people that were in front of you or if oh, they were behind yeah. you because what because the the lap is so short it's only a 200 meter lap so that became difficult to not necessarily know where you were and at that point the water's so cold a lot of people are cramping including me like every time you have to take a really sharp turn and kind of get into a spot like the arches of your feet or your hamstrings or something starts to cramp. And I can promise you if your toes or your feet are not pointed behind you and you're trying to swim, it's like swimming with a parachute behind you. It's impossible. And those cramps as well, when they do start in the open water, it's so hard to, it's um, very difficult to get them out because you have to keep the stroke going and and that's the position that your muscles are starting to cramp up in. Uh Uh-huh. So you finished 12 laps in 43 minutes and 19 seconds to take third and move into third overall. How did it feel to move up into the top three? It felt good to just to remind myself that before fatigue was going to set in and the volume was going to set in from the week, I at least opened some eyes and I gained some respect from the fellow athletes that I actually belonged because this is their domain. What was fun even of the swim is there were triathletes or there were other people that you would think would place better than me on that. And for me to come away with a top three place on that was cool. Even Mike Morris on camera was like, and then out of nowhere, this Herman guy shows up and does well on the swim. So that part was fun. And just in the open water, is there a mantra that you would tell yourself to stay focused over that duration? No, I I think the thing I had to pay the closest attention to was how hard the wind was blowing and how to just stay relaxed, irregardless of what the wind was doing to you. And, you know, when you're swimming upstream, you've got to make sure that you are relaxed with whatever effort you can give before you start to break. And then once you can turn the corner and start heading back the other way and you're heading downstream with the wind and the the wind isn't actually blowing the water in your mouth anymore, then relax and get your heart rate back down. I think the biggest thing in that water temperature was everybody wants to quit. Like everybody, nobody wants to be in cold water that way. As long as you keep moving, no one is going to put the effort in to pass you. But as soon as you stop, if they keep moving, they will pass you. Hmm. So my thought was people will beat me physically, but nobody will beat me mentally. So I'm just going to continue to move 
however I can. Sounds like a really strong mindset to have an, an event with so many various obstacles, like you mentioned, the wind and, you know, then the current you'd be fighting against when you're swimming upstream. You've got the debris that's floating through the water and then you've got the other athletes on this 200-meter course and you don't really know where you're placing because the visibility is so low. Event three was the Highland Games, which is a three-in-one series that combined heavy stone lifts, a tug-of-war and the Kaiser Force machine. Had you ever done any events in this combination before or had you done like a strongman highland games in the past i've never done any highland games but i would bet that most people in some fitness arena one way or another have probably whether you're in crossfit or whether you're an outdoors person most people have probably lifted a sandbag and having some sort of crossfit background i i had lifted sandbags uh, and I had lifted some Atlas stones, but never some raw stones. So these stones that we had to lift were legitimately like raw stones that you would pick out of a mountain. They just happened to weigh them and put the the weight of them on the stones. You knew how much it weighed, uh, but they were not like an Atlas stone that you would use in like a strongman games. These were very odd shaped stones. I'd also say that somebody at some point in their life growing up in school, playing with kids. Somebody's played tug of war before. Most people have probably grabbed onto a towel with their brother or sister or cousin or somebody and tried to tug on it and play tug of war. The only one that I think was really unique that most people have not done would have been the Kaiser sled. And they use that, whether it's fireman games, firewoman games. My guess is they'll probably do something along these lines, maybe even with Coast Guard. But I had never actually used that particular one. I think the only one that maybe that have used it was Sam Briggs because in the CrossFit Games, in an indoor arena, she actually won the Assault Kaiser Sled event. So I think she was the only one, and surprise, Sam Briggs worked for the fire department. So yeah. not only has she done it there, but she's also worked for the fire department. She's, In fact, it's funny. I'm reading her book right now. I think it's called like Start Your Engines. And right now it's what, March 17th. It actually said her birthday was this past Sunday. I think it was on the 14th. So happy birthday, oh, Sam. Happy birthday, Sam. That Kaiser Force Machine, that sled, it simulates knocking down a door, I think from memory, but it's about like hitting a heavy object up a sled with a hammer held over your head as fast as you possibly can. That's the best way that I could think about describing it. How taxing is something like that on your cardiovascular system? Cardiovascular system, probably not so bad. What makes that event so hard is you're moving an incredibly heavy sled. It's like a, a big cube, but the actual sledgehammer that you're using to hit this sled to move it is only eight pounds. Like you're having to hit a massive object with a really light object, so it doesn't move very much. And if you don't hit it square because the object's so light, it vibrates your hands to no end. So wow. you really have to make sure that where you're striking the object is direct and making sure that you're holding the, the correct grip tension. Otherwise, your entire body is going to shake. And if you hit it on an angle as well, I imagine the hammer goes off in all sorts of different directions and you've got to like maintain control of that thing uh -huh. while it's like flailing around. Out of the three events, what do you think was the hardest and challenged most athletes? I think that's different for me than it is for everyone else. The hardest one for me was actually the tug of war because some people were actually wearing cleats or spikes and I had nothing that had any traction. When you're trying to pull against somebody where they've got an amazing grip in the ground and you're on what felt like ice skates, 
it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're going to lose. So that one was a bummer because I actually felt like I got knocked out of that event earlier than what I thought I would have because I had to put my body in like an awkward position to maintain a little bit of foot pressure. I think most people would say the stones were the hardest because they either didn't have the raw strength to do it or they didn't even have enough technique to do it correctly. Mm. Like people don't think about it, but there's a lot of technique to lifting a stone. Yeah. And keeping it as close to your center of mass as you can. And if you've never tried it, it's really difficult. I think everybody probably felt the exact same on the Kaiser sled because it's chopping wood. It's knocking a door down. It's whatever you want to call it. But it's that's a sledgehammer hitting an object as fast as you can. Uh, so at the end of day one, you found yourself in third place overall after the Highland Games. What was the hardest challenge across day one for you? All of them were probably like physically about the same I think the hardest challenge for me was how do I mentally stay in it? Even though it's only day one, knowing there's a lot of uncertainty coming and being able to remind myself that I can't control what events they give us and I can't control the people around me. I can only control my own thoughts and how I'm going to perform in the effort level I give. So I mm. kept having to just remind myself those things. That was probably the the hardest part of the entire event, but even day one, because you still have so much anxiety overhead because you're only a quarter of the way through this entire thing after day one. And how was the body feeling at the end of day one? My body felt actually great. At the end of day one, my body felt great. My pride was hurt a little bit still because I know that I, I had so much more in the tank and what I would expect myself to do on certain things didn't happen. But ultimately, I felt great. And I'm also going to tell you that being the new guy, adrenaline was still running. So I, I didn't really have a whole lot of feeling. Probably didn't feel too point. much pain or anything because of that yeah. adrenaline. Day two began with Decker Strong, and I'll do my best to describe this to the audience. It's a 10-zone functional fitness circuit completed for time. In heat two, you were paired against Spartan Race Pro team athlete Ryan Kent. And how did it feel like to um, stand at that starting line head-to-head -head with Ryan? First off, Ryan, if I could go back, he was one of the coolest guys that I met on that entire trip. Looking back and now hearing some of the stories about these guys and some of the things that he had gone through, I didn't realize that it was actually Ryan Kent and Corinna Coffin that were the face of DECA. Like they were the face of what this is when they started this thing. And I had no idea. And going into this event, I tried to keep my mouth shut because at this stage, they don't know it, but I'm the world record holder in that event but it's unofficial. So I know I can compete here. And so I felt good. And I didn't know that he was actually the face of this to go in. I, I'll be honest. I was kind of like, no, put me, I, I want you to put me against Hunter, who everybody thinks is going to win. Put me against him. If I'm going to be here, compete on this stage, I want to compete against him. But then I didn't realize just how good Ryan was. You know, so like he and I were still head to head <laughs> the whole time. Did you say anything to each other on that starting line before the event? This was probably where it really started to hit home just how cool of a community this was, just this group of people, because we all came from so many different backgrounds that we were all willing to like help each other. I'm loaning out my tape and my wrist wraps to somebody who has no clue what they're doing. And at the same time, people who knew what they were doing on the stones or on some of the obstacle course, they were the ones trying to walk some of the fresh newbies through like, how do you do some of these obstacles? What would you say? So 
at the start line for this event, Ryan and I looked at each other and we gave each other like a little fist bump. We're like, hey, let's do it, man. Let's go have some fun. And it was not anything mean. It was just like, hey, I respect you for everything that you're doing. Now I want to kick your butt and <laughs> let's let's see what happens. Reminds me actually a little bit of some of the cage fighters that I've known in the past. They are just lovely people. And then that uh, bell goes and they become absolute animals and just go for it. It sounds a little bit similar where it's all just fun and games, literally, until the event kind of uh -huh. kicks in and that's yeah. when it's go time. I'm curious about unicorn power here and why it's so important in this event. Can you describe <laughs> okay. why that is? All right. So going through this event, we get to the very end and people will never see this because they didn't put it on camera. So I get through the event and I think in that one, I think I finished second in that event, which still was not as good as the time that I had, I guess a couple of weeks prior, but unbeknownst to me, guess what? After that previous day, fatigue is starting to set in already. Funny, right? That's odd. So on camera, I finished the event and I looked in it and I rolled over and I said, I need more sonic speed and I need unicorn power. So before I left, my three and my five-year-old wished me luck. My son thinks he's Sonic the Hedgehog, and he wants, he always, he's, Daddy, you have to have Sonic speed. So I needed to be fast like Sonic the Hedgehog, and my daughter gave me a little keychain with a little unicorn on it and said, good luck, Daddy. And if you, like, press the button, it makes this little like ringing sound and lights up like a, like a crazy unicorn. And she's three and she's good luck, daddy, go have fun. So when I finished the race, I knew I'm the nobody. So I'm not going to get a lot of the camera time rather relative to the people that are well known. And I don't have a big social media following, so I'm of no marketing value to anyone. <laughs> so if I had the camera in my face, I want to make sure that I'm showing my kids you're why I'm here. Incredible. It's my family that's why I'm here. So I, the one chance I would get to say something cool or whatever, I'm like, I'm breathing hard. Oh, I need more sonic speed and I need unicorn <laughs> power. And then, and the only thing that they put on TV was I need unicorn power. And they're like, this is a weird cat. Like, who is this? And they're like, they had no idea really the other part of the quote. Something must have worked because you picked up second and you were beaten only by Hunter, who actually set the world record in the event. I think you actually set a, a record as well that was obviously beaten by Hunter in that event. I could be wrong there. What was the reaction then amongst all of the other athletes with your performance? When I beat Ryan Kent, who was the face of DECA, I remember looking around and everyone's kind of like whispering to themselves and they're like, who is this guy? What is he doing? And again, it was a very humbling opportunity to compete with those athletes on that platform. And I knew at that point, I was like, okay, I can compete with these guys. I just now have to trust myself and trust what I've done for so many years and make sure I don't focus on, what other people can and can't do. I just look in the mirror and say, okay, how do I approach this best? Mm. And it was just nice to get that edge. And it wasn't like day one was a fluke. Oh, okay, cool. Whatever. This guy's, he'll go away. And then I come right out and then put up another solid performance. And they're like, oh, okay. So he's still he, here. He's still here. Destroying. Yeah. 
so that was fun. And that brings us to the end of part three. In part four, the final part of episode nine, Herman breaks down day three and four of competition, and part four is live now, so you can finish the series. My name is Mike, and this is The Goods. Thank you for listening.